Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13. And if you're following in the Pew Bible, it's on page 828. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This sheet, which at the top it says Acts seventeen twenty four through 31, and last week I lied to you. It wasn't intentional, but I lied. I said there would be 13 things that I had found, and I went through and I counted them again, did my own study again, and I found this time 16 things. So if you found 14 and you thought to yourself, I've got him, I've beat him, then woe to you. Shouldn't have been so haughty because I found 16, not just 13. So I've got you. And I'm happy. (laughs) I'm not going to go through this in any kind of detail today, but uh, I really encourage you to look at these, uh, look at the passage again and go through and see the things that Acts 17 verses 24 through 31 says about God. This is a great passage of scripture and it comes at at just a beautiful moment in the book of Acts when Paul is speaking uh, to the philosophers in the city of Athens and talking to them about uh, the God that they're, that they don't even know that they're worshiping and it's the unknown God and, uh, and he lists all kinds of things here, at least 16, about uh, characteristics about the personhood of God. And I really encourage you to look at that. Um, notice verse 28, because if you counted these up, you'd say, oh, he's got 17. He doesn't even realize it. But verse 28, I didn't count that one. Uh, you notice it's in bold there, summary, in him we live and move and have our being. All of those characteristics that are listed right after that are, are ones that have already been mentioned. So I actually do, didn't count verse 28. But uh, everything else, immediately after a dash, you will find a line, and, uh, and those are the 17 that I counted, or 16, sorry, that I counted. So if you, uh, if you get more than that, then praise the Lord. If you get less than that, well, keep looking, and you'll find uh, at least the 16 that I came up with. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I thank you and praise you for the privilege we have this morning of being together in your name. And God, I pray that you'd be with us as we look at a portion of Scripture and, and pray that our time together is fruitful as we attempt to build the kingdom together. We just thank you again, God, that you're with us, that you're present here today as we worship and honor you. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen. I would like everyone, if they would, to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4, I think it was 828 in the Pew Bibles that Paul just read from. It was interesting. You you remember last week when I was speaking and I mentioned that I ran into the preacher's office when I was about 15 years old and I went in and I said, have you read this passage yet? Well, I, I had forgotten that this week I was going to be preaching on that very passage. Uh, We choose our our sermon topics uh, in line with our life group topics, and Ephesians 4 was scheduled for this day back in August. And so it was totally coincidental that I mentioned Ephesians 4 last week and said, 
you know, this is one of those passages that I found early on in my life as a Christian and ran into the preacher's office and said, have you read Ephesians 4? And so when I looked at uh, what I was going to be preaching on this week and, and saw it was Ephesians 4, I got excited. I thought God has worked here in terms of me mentioning that last week and kind of telling that story. But then he's also just worked because this is a timely passage for us. This is a great passage of scripture for us to be looking at this morning. And I think that's how God works. We plan in August for Ephesians 4 to be addressed on this day. And I think it just, it ends up being a a fantastic uh, section of scripture for us to be looking at uh, on this particular day. Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to read first of all the first six verses. So if you look at first six verses of Ephesians 4 with me, that'd be great. As a prisoner for the Lord, then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And even as I'm reading this right now, I'm thinking to myself, man, no wonder I was so excited when I was 15 years old and I read this passage of scripture, excited enough to run into the preacher's office. Because this, this is a unique and wonderful section uh, within a unique and wonderful book. I want you to notice, first of all, this, our joint responsibility If there's anything that is the theme for those first six verses, it has to do with unity. In fact, notice this. In verse 1, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Twice in that verse, if you're looking at an NIV, you'll see the word you. And both times in that verse, the word you is plural. It's not singular. And what it's saying is, is that you as a body of Christ, as an Ephesian church, You have the responsibility of living a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And so whatever is worthy of that calling, this is what the church is supposed to be, not just the individual. It's a joint kind of statement. Now, it's interesting because as you move on past that into verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Notice that there is a, 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 a correspondence here between that line... And specifically, the fruit of the Spirit. Like you'll see some of the same words in verse 2 especially, calling for a certain kind of character to be present within the church. And it's, it's fruit of Spirit kind of words. Words like humility and words like gentleness. There's a sense of being kind and caring and unifying in the way that we treat one another. Well, it's interesting as you move on through the passage that it says specifically that the unity that is created is a unity created by the Holy Spirit within the church. In fact, notice the start of verse 3. It says, maintain the unity, or in the Greek it says, to keep or guard the unity. And it's not something that we create. It's something that is there. God puts the unity there by his Spirit, and it's our role, a joint role for us all, to maintain the unity that he's created. That that word, by the way, at the beginning of verse 3 where it says guard or keep and maintain, the notion here is to do your best. Do your level best. 
do whatever you can do, take responsibility for yourself. And then again, it's a plural kind of expression. So it's, it says to the whole church, do everything you can church as a corporate body to maintain the unity that we have given to us by the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're doing something here that, interestingly enough, that, that comes a little bit unnatural for us. When, when something happens within a group of people where there is some kind of, of disunity or disagreement, whether in a group of people or even just among individuals, probably the most natural thing in the world is for us to assign blame. Wouldn't you agree? Like if something bad happens... Or if two people just find themselves in disagreement about something, they tend to, first of all, blame somebody else for whatever it is that has arisen. And so we say things like, well, they did this. And, and they need to do this in order for us to get this straightened out. And even husbands and wives, shockingly, will sometimes find themselves playing this game. And it usually happens because some man, and I can speak freely because I am one, some man has probably left something undone or unpicked up. Now, there is no such word in the English language as unpicked up, but I've coined it. I've, I've manufactured a word this morning to describe something that occurs in the life of every male. We leave things unpicked up. Sometimes it's socks. Sometimes it's underwear. Sometimes it's your dirty shirt from the day before. Sometimes it's socks, underwear, and a dirty shirt from the day before all in one pile. And they are unpicked up. And so, easily, a row can occur, a battle of wills between two people. The forces of nature bring us together, and then there's the, the opportunity for intense disunity. As she says something to him like, I've had to pick this up a thousand times. And then he'll say something like, well, I was going to pick it up. I just didn't get to it yet. Okay? Now, those of you who are nodding your heads have had this conversation before. And I, and I understand that. Okay? I have had this conversation before. And, and what I find in my own life is that it's easy for me to find an excuse or to blame someone else for some circumstance like this. Now, in this case, obviously, the man doesn't have a whole lot to stand on in terms of his excuses. He could say something like, well, I was going to get to it. And he just hasn't. In which case, it immediately becomes her fault because she's pushing the issue. She could simply relax. She could let things go. In a matter of moments, you were going to pick that up. And when you did pick it up, you probably would have picked up something else. The house would have been way cleaner if she would have waited just a few moments, okay? But now the issue has been pressed, and so there is some kind of conflict. And we tend, in circumstances like that, to assign blame. It's the natural way. But whether in a relationship between husband and wife, 
or a relationship within a church body, to assign blame first is not what God calls for in terms of unity. Instead, what God calls for is for us to do everything we can, and this is really what verse 3 means, to do everything we can intentionally to maintain unity. Now, this isn't the only passage that speaks to the issue. And so Romans 12, 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, it's possible that the person with whom you're trying to live at peace is absolutely unpeaceable. It's possible that they absolutely refuse to have any kind of of positive relationship with you. It may be that they're just that cantankerous, fighting kind of spirit who refuses to do anything to advance the cause of unity. But as far as it depends on you, the text says, you need to be at peace with everyone. Well, here's another one, Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Notice what this says. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. It doesn't say, and there you remember that you have something against someone else. It specifically says, if you remember that they have something against you, maybe you're not even the instigator. But there is some kind of relational conflict. What do you do with that? You have the responsibility of going and promoting, bringing about unity within that relationship, even if you're not the one who is angry. Even if you're not the one who has brought on the conflict. The text says that you have a responsibility to try and reconcile with the person with whom there is the conflict. Now, this is interesting, the way this this whole notion of trying to bring out about peace and, uh, and even going to the extent where if somebody has something against you, you go to them and you talk to them about it and do so with a loving, spirit-filled kind of attitude. It's interesting the way this works out. I, I've had people come to me sometimes, and, and there'll be something with which they disagree. So here's a conflict. They want to talk to me because they disagree. And, and I'll start to talk to them. And they might say something to me after a little while like, this isn't really going the way that I expected. And... The reason it wasn't going exactly the way they expected is because sometimes I'm not willing to argue. I make an intentional effort not to get angry and to argue in some circumstances. Now, I have to admit that I'm not perfect at this, but I'm growing. I'm trying to be what God wants me to be with respect to the notion of conflict and building unity. And so I try to be unifying. I try to let the fruit of the spirit come out in me, even if sometimes I really fail at this. And inevitably, what I find is that people assume that because I'm not willing to argue, get all upset, give it right back to them, that there is some kind of perception on their parts that it is a sign of weak character. Oh, so you're not willing to just give it right back to me, eh? Well, you must be a weakling then. Can't defend your own position. 
When in reality, it's the fruit of the Spirit, I would love to think, that works in the person who is able to walk away in some cases, if that needs to be, but at the very least, to speak back in the midst of a conflict with the fruit of the Spirit. And so I would say that we need to respond to each other with that kind of gentleness and calmness and respect. And, and by the way, that doesn't mean that we don't disagree. But we need to speak to each other in the sense of unity and calmness that I think the Spirit calls for in a context like that. And then I would say something like this. To value telling it like it is, is oftentimes nothing more than making rudeness and harsh harsh speech sound like a virtue. And I've heard this numerous times over the years. Like there's an individual that's in my mind right now, and people used to say about him all the time, well, at least he tells it like it is. He's an honest man. He gets right in your face and he lets you know what the truth is. He's not going to hold back. He'll just tell it like it is. And I would always think, why does telling it like it is have to be associated with getting in someone's face and being rude? That seems strange to me. Like, I appreciate honesty as much as anybody. But telling it like it is in someone's face in a rude way is not just telling it like it is. It's also rudeness. And from what I can tell, rudeness is not a virtue. That's not in the list. When I read the fruit of the Spirit, rudeness is not in there. In fact, getting in someone's face and telling it like it is is not in the list. But gentleness is. Patience is maintaining the unity of the body of Christ is the spirit working in order to create that kind of unity. That's in the list. Now, don't get me wrong. I, uh, I actually love fruit filled arguing. And when I say that, I don't mind at all. I actually enjoy getting together with people and talking about things with which we might disagree or on which we might disagree, but doing so from a perspective of the fruit and talking with a sense of gentleness and peace and cooperation and love. And I think that people can really disagree without being disagreeable. I think that people can argue without being argumentative. I think it's possible when the spirit works within us so that that spirit of gentleness and patience and humility comes out even in the midst of a disagreement. And to argue in other ways seems to me inappropriate. And so humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining the unity of the bond of peace, making every effort to keep guard and protect the unity of the spirit, that's the fruit of the spirit in the life of the church. And it needs to exemplify all of us at every point. And so here's what we need to do. We must constantly ask in our dealings with each other, what can I do to maintain and promote unity in the body? Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 makes this a priority. Certainly as much a priority theologically as anything else there is in Scripture. 
What is it that I can do to maintain and promote unity in the body? We need to work at that. Now, here are some things on which Paul says we're supposed to be unified. He says this in these same verses. The things on which there is to be unity, and you can look at the text there, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And so we need to maintain our unity in the bond of peace with the spirit-created unity that Paul has talked about. And he says specifically in this passage that there is just one body. And that means, of course, that this morning there are Christians who are meeting in Vancouver and we're one body with them. There are Christians meeting in Los Angeles today, maybe a little later than we are, and they are one body with us. There are Christians in Dallas and New York. There are Christians in New Delhi, and they're all one with us today. And my thought is, is that if one body is meeting from Calgary to New York to New Delhi, then at least there also is unity between a group that meets at 945 and a group that meets at 12. One body within the body of Christ. And so you and I are called by the Holy Spirit to keep the unity of this body. And we can say something like, well, yeah, but they did this. But it seems to me like Ephesians 4 takes right away from us the option of saying, yeah, but they did this. And so if Ed Zimmerman does something to grossly offend me, I can't say, well, Ed did this. I don't know what it would be, Ed. But I can't say to Ed, well, Ed did this because that's not maintaining the unity with all of my effort the way that the text says. Instead, for me to, with all of my effort, maintain the unity of the body, I need to say, it doesn't matter what Ed did. In fact, if I'm laying my gift at the altar and I realize Ed did something to me and it really ticks me off, then it's time for me to talk to Ed. Maybe even before I lay my gift at the altar and for Ed and I to work out that difference and this disagreement. Because that's what he calls us to. And we do that in a spirit of love and gentleness and peace. Because that's what the spirit, that's what the text calls us to do. Now, as the passage goes on, there are three more big points about the church in verses 7 through 16. And we don't have time to spend on on all of these this morning, but I just thought I would mention these anyway. this passage has meant so much to me, and, and these such a, it's such a beautiful uh, expression of what the church is in Jesus. First of all, there have been gifts that have been given. If you look in verses 7, 8, 9, it talks about the grace that has come to us in the gifting that comes to us in Jesus. It talks about how Christ has determined that gifting. That there's a gifting to individuals within the body of Christ that parallels 
what Christ has been wanting to give to the church. And so Christ has things that he wants to, to drop into our laps, ways in which he wants to bless us. And it says that his grace has done exactly that in giving us very kinds of gifts. And so whether you know it or not, you have been gifted within the body of Christ. I'm praying that one of the gifts that you've received from the Holy Spirit is this whole spirit of gentleness and the fruit of the spirit that's supposed to be in our lives. I, I pray that's one of them. But in addition to this fruit of the spirit that comes for each one of us, there is some kind of special gifting that comes to us in the body of Jesus. Ways in which we have opportunity to serve him. Ways in which God prepares the church and allows it to carry out his will and get the things done uh, that he needs for it to do. And so in our world, the church is supposed to do certain things. He's gifted us so that we're adequate to get done in our world what God needs for us to get done. The second way or thing that I need to say here is that gifting takes place for the building up of the body toward maturity. This is especially the case with verse 11 through 13. Look at these verses. Verse 11 through 13 says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so he has a very definite goal that he wants both for the body corporate and for each of us individually. He wants us to reach to the level of the fullness of Christ. Now, in one sense, that's a bit audacious. I know some of you, and you know me. I'm a long ways from measuring up to the fullness of Christ. So it's almost ridiculous for me to claim that this is somehow my goal. I'm going to measure up to the fullness of Christ. But this is what Paul says is the goal for the church and individuals within the body of Christ. And one of the things that he does specifically to take us down that path is to gift certain individuals within the church to help get us there. And so he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. That last one is actually one role. Pastors, when you read it in Greek, it's, all, it's one. There are four different gifts here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. It's all one role. And God has gifted certain individuals within the church in order to help build up the body of Christ and kind of create both the growth and the unity that God desires for all of us. And so we may not always appreciate, and this is certainly timely in light of our uh, talking about our expectations of our elders, we might not always appreciate what our shepherd's role is as sheep. But it is to enhance our lives as Christians. It's to bless us. We may not always appreciate what the elders are trying to do for those of us who are younger in the faith. But God is trying to use them in order to build us up and nurture us and help us to grow. Workers don't always appreciate what overseers or managers are about. But they have a responsibility for overseeing and managing. So shepherds, elders, Overseers have an incredible responsibility within the body of Christ to help build up the body of Christ and to help us to reach this goal. And so God has specifically gifted them and appointed them in order that they might be 
the kind of persons who can build up the body of Christ. We won't turn there right now, but in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and inevitably somebody's going to turn there, so you'll see this when you get there. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it specifically says that the Holy Spirit has appointed the shepherds, the elders, the overseers to guide the flock and to protect it. The Holy Spirit does this. It's not just a church decision. And so we'll make a decision maybe here in a couple of weeks or months or whatever it is that we're going to do in terms of choosing new elders. And when we make the choice of who are going to be shepherds among us, it's not just us who are going to be making that decision. We aren't the only ones in the process. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is part of the process of appointing these people to this role within the church. Now, as I've said, they have a very heavy responsibility because unity and growth within the body of Christ are one of the things for which they are responsible. And so unity and growth in love is every member's responsibility, and then it's also the responsibility of our elders. As you read through the rest of this passage, it's fascinating. I want you to look at verse 16 and see the way that verse 16 ends. It says, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so we have unity and growth and love expressed in verse 16. Now, what's fascinating for me as a guy who reads his Bible occasionally is that there is here in Ephesians chapter 4 something called an inclusio. And you may not care at all about inclusios, but this one is very important. Because in verse 16, we have the end statement of a section. And the end statement is virtually identical to the beginning of this statement. And verses 1 through 16 is one single unit. In fact, there are only about three sentences in all of verses 1 through 16 in Greek. And what this, what I'm trying to tell you is, is that verse 16, when it ends, ends in the same way that verse 1 begins. And so you have the beginning and the ending being virtually identical. The reason that Paul does that is because he's trying to say, this is my point. And so he writes 16 verses, but really the whole point is at the end end of verse 16 and the beginning of this section in chapters 1 verses 1 and 2. And so look at verses 1 and 2. Again, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Look at verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's the beginning of the inclusio. Verse 16 is the end. And everything else, he's saying, the point of it all is to do what the start and the end say. Well, that tells me that the growth of the body, the gifting that Jesus does, the establishing of special roles within the body of Christ, all of that is designed to do this very special task of keeping the church unified together in the bond of love growing as a body to become what God wants them to be. 
And those expressions are plural. This is what we are supposed to be together as a body of Christ. So that means you and I have a responsibility. We have it corporately. We have it singularly. Because what we are as a bunch of singles is added up to the corporate goal. And that is being the forces for this sense of unity and love and growth within the body of Christ. And anything we do to violate that is in fact running in direct contrast to verse 3 which says make every effort. We need to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do have unity within you. We thank you, Lord, for watching over us, for protecting us, helping us to do and to be what we need to do and be. Soften our hearts in ways that, that any of us, me, anybody here, anybody that's not here, in any way, God, that we don't contribute all our effort toward maintaining the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, put us down, Lord. Help us not to do those things which prevent the unity. And help us, Father, not to look for who to blame, where to assign blame. Help us just take the responsibility that we have for maintaining unity. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.